Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bodies that haunt Hollywood and try to find out why they went to their graves. This week, get yourself a nice glass of J&B scotch and pour it into your computer. This is The Thing. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a demon with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like John Carpenter's The Thing, which we'll be talking about in a very spooky episode of Blast Zone. It's spooky time. That's right. We're doing Blastober all of the month of October. We are going to be doing horror movies with Ian's special new theme he cooked up for this month. We got a new logo. If you check the artwork, it's going to be a great time. Everything is spookified all for your spooking pleasure. We got four movies lined up. A month of Wednesdays full of horror, fun, and goodness, starting with The Thing. What better place to start than The Thing? One of the iconic horror movies of all time, I would say. Classic. But we'll talk more about that a little later. But Ian, how are you doing? Are you getting in the holiday spirit, the, the spooky spirit? Yeah, you know what? I'm doing all right. The weather cooled off a little bit, so I found out that it wasn't the heat that was driving me mad, but I'm a little less sweaty. So I'm putting that in the plus column. How are you doing? I'm good. Longtime listeners will know there was a big buildup to the weekend of me helping my mom move. That's right. Um, I came and went and I'm, I'm okay. I survived. Okay. I didn't throw my back out too bad. So I'm sure everyone's very relieved that I'm doing okay. I mean, I am. We're getting in the 40s overnight now, which I'm very excited about. It's like it's nice. prime sleeping weather. Crisp, yeah. So I'm feeling good. Autumn is my favorite season, so I'm very excited. Yeah, this is a good time. And this is fun. We get to do a theme month. Yes, yeah, so we have, we've thrown around a lot of ideas for theme months, and this is the first one we're actually able to follow through on so far. So See how it goes. Let us know. Yeah. People, hit us up. Let us know what you think. Spooky month, Blastober. Yeah, if you guys like them, we can do more theme months. But we're definitely going to be doing this every October because it's just too much damn fun. Yeah. I can't stop now. No. We're on this train. We're in it. So before we get into the thing, you know what we have to do. Ian, tell me about something you watched this week that you thought was uh, pretty cool. I watched something fresh and new, and it kind of ties into this week's movie just in the theme of tentacles because I watched Squid Game. If you haven't heard about it, it's a Netflix production. South Korean writer-director Hwang Dong-hyu wrote and produced and directed this thing. It's a big sensation. It just came out 10 days ago as of this record. It's on fire on social media. And that's where I caught word about it from my friends on Twitter. And all of us talking about it sent it straight to the top of Netflix's global top 10 chart. Apparently that's the first time for a Korean drama to make it to number one. It's the hot thing yeah. and it's fun. I'm only a little bit into it. It's too new for me to really talk about a lot of details because I don't want to spoil anything about it. But it starts out as an engrossing family drama, divorced middle-aged dad. Kind of a loser, kind of a fuck up. And then it just gets way, way more intense from there. So fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I understand it's got kind of a Battle Royale, Hunger Games conceit to it. Yeah, like, it's got a big concept and there's some very stark action that breaks out. Are there actual squids in it or is that more of a... Uh... It's not. It reveals at the beginning the squid game is this schoolyard game where there's this shape drawn on the playground that's kind of vaguely resembles a squid. It's got a pointy head and a spot in the center and it's about jumping on the different parts of the squid. So whether actual squids materialize later on, I will have to wait and see. I am interested in checking that out. I've, I've had it recommended to me by several people now, including yeah, you. So it's going around. must make time for this, but I've been getting back into movies. I did a bunch of shows for a while. I rewatched mm -hmm. Succession, which I told you guys about and some other stuff, but I was like, I want to watch a new movie, a brand new movie I've never seen before. So I checked out The Card Counter ah. from Paul Schrader. Starring one of my favorite actors, Oscar Isaac. How can you not love Oscar Isaac? He's good. It's fantastic and everything. But the movie left me a little cold. It is not what I was expecting. It's The marketing makes it seem like it's going to be a fun little gambling movie. Maybe like Rounders or something along those lines. But no, it is a very dark very disturbing drama about past trauma and accountability and deals with some heavy subjects you wouldn't expect from a movie about a card counter without spoiling anything. Also, card counting is a blackjack thing, as far as I know. That's uh, what I thought. Yeah. So the first 10 minutes of the movie, he's like, you count cards like this. If the dealer is showing this, you get plus one. And then if 
you're in the positive column, you bet big. And, but then he's like, all right, never mind all that. I'm going to play poker for the rest of the movie now. <laughs> I was like, you don't count cards in poker. Is that the core irony of the movie that this guy's really good at blackjack and then he walks away from it and just fucks up playing poker? He's also good at poker. Okay. It just, it seems like to call it the card counter and to spend a decent amount of time setting up the rules of card counting and how it works and how it's treated by the casinos and how they handle card counters because it's not technically illegal, but it's frowned upon and all that. Like, oh, so they go over all that in the movie and then they walk away from it? Yeah. And then he plays poker like, <laughs> when he's in a <laughs> okay. casino and not dealing with the other main storyline of the movie that I don't want to spoil. Sure. But a lot of the movie takes place in the casino. Very little of it has to do with blackjack or card counting. So aside from that, Paul Schrader, good director. I really liked First Reformed, his 2017 movie with Ethan Hawke. Okay. As a priest having a crisis of faith and it gets darker from there. I don't want to spoil that one either. But you'll see he he's very guilty of having the same motifs kind of over and over again in his movies to the point where it can feel like self-parody. Um, and all the greatest hits are, are present in this one. So if you watch too much Schrader in a short period of time, it can wear you down a little bit. Well, he's an old dude, right? This is a guy from the 70s era of Hollywood, right? He's yeah, he wrote Taxi Driver. Okay. He wrote a lot of Scorsese's big movies, Raging Bull. Okay, yeah, so. that's what I thought. He's a contemporary of Scorsese and Coppola and all those guys. So probably not going to learn any new tricks at this point. But No, set in his ways to say the least. Yeah. But still, it's not a bad movie, but just with the pedigree it had and the marketing and the synopsis really seemed up my alley and it wasn't quite what I was hoping for. All right. Well, can't win them all, but we're going to win this week. That's right. We get to talk about one of my favorite movies ever. Probably my favorite horror movie. Okay. I racked my brain trying to think of one I prefer more. Um, And there's another one we're covering this month that is up there, but no, I don't think anything is on par with the thing. So tell me a little bit about your history with the thing. How did you find this movie? When did you first see it? What'd you think of it upon your first viewing? So when this came out, I was aware, I was a self-aware little person, but I was too young to go to the theaters and see an R-rated movie. But thanks to a older neighbor kid, I nevertheless saw a Fangoria magazine with photos of all the most horrifying parts of this movie. So I got to be traumatized in my own way, on my own time. And so I was pretty scared of this movie for my childhood growing up. I've never been a scary movie person and gore and especially sort of body horror. Oh man, I'm I'm putting you through hell this month. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I'm different. I'm a little different now, even than I was, I don't know, two years ago, but body horror and stuff can freak me out. But this movie now feels like nostalgia to me. So we'll get into how this movie affects you because you can't just brush it off like I'm trying to blithely do right now. It, it, uh, It definitely gets you still. But anyway, I was, I think I never saw the whole thing until, until two weeks ago when I started prepping for this show. I think I saw bits and pieces of it, but I knew that it was going to be something that was too much for me my whole adult life. So I avoided it. So I got to go into it pretty fresh with the exception of like recognizing all the horrible creatures. A lot of it was new to me and it was terrific. I I almost look at it from an academic point of view now when I watch it and respect Uh the craft that went into it more than anything. But this movie's still scary. Like it still gets a reaction out of me seeing it for probably the 10th time at this point in my life. This movie is very well made and paced and, and the effects are obviously what gets a lot of the recognition for and deserved recognition because it's fantastically done. But the movie is just scary in a way that it has a lot of elements that ordinarily don't age well. Like sci-fi movies from the 80s tend to be very cheesy now. And it kind of avoids all those pitfalls with one exception. It's really just a miracle that it holds up as well. And a lot of that can be practical effects, but even practical effects from that era don't look great sometimes. Yeah. It can be obviously a puppet or obviously a stop motion, right. whatever it is. But the thing really pulls off a lot of different things well, which makes it such a well-rounded movie and has kind of helped it transcend the horror genre. And I think the first time I saw this movie was when I was reading a video game magazine and they were talking about the upcoming game. Okay. The game that came out in I think like 2002, 2004, but whatever the article was years before that when they had first announced it and I was reading about it and it sounded really cool and I was like, I'd heard of the thing but never seen it. I was like in my early teens and me and a couple friends rented it from a blockbuster video. Okay. (laughs) In a very old timey way. And then we watched it. I was blown away. And I think I watched it like twice more before I returned the video or DVD. It was a DVD. I'm not that old. And it just became like a constant comfort food movie for me. No pun intended, because you shouldn't eat while watching this movie. It (laughs) might upset your stomach a little bit because this movie's fucking gross, but in the most fun way. And body (laughs) horror usually is very upsetting to me. Like I can't watch the fly video drone. Like I don't deal well with Cronenberg stuff because he's very focused on that genre. But I don't know something about this movie. It's gone past that point now where I watch it and can enjoy it without being grossed out too much by it. Like the grossness is a fun part of it for me now. I think we'll have to dive into that because that's to me is the key to this movie and to how it 
was initially received and to how it later evolved into a fan favorite and a critically acclaimed classic of the horror and sci-fi genre. It really is about what impact the horror parts are having on you when you watch it. And it's obviously very different upon repeat watches. It changes your experience of the movie. So I think most of this episode is going to be us dealing with that in some form or another. Yeah, there's still stuff that that upsets me watching this movie, which we will absolutely touch on because there's a lot of iconic scenes from this movie. I was struck by how little dialogue there is. Like MacReady as a main character does not have a lot of dialogue in this movie. No. So much of this movie's like cultural footprint is just in images that stick with people. Yeah, it's stripped down. There's some really good lines in it, but even then they aren't the kind of iconic lines. You don't quote lines from this movie, really. There's none of those sort of big zingers. No, there's not. If you had to pick an iconic line from this movie, what would it be like? Yeah, fuck you too. That's not (laughs) really a quotable line. It's the coolest line, but it's, yeah, out of context, it doesn't mean that much. Or if one of of the best ones, and I think a lot of this has to do with the delivery, but is, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. That is a fantastic line, but it's also hard to quote. But it doesn't really work out of context. Yeah, it's not like you can use- You can't use use it on your friends unless they tied you to a couch and it's long. It was the winter, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of elements that need to be in place for that one to really land. So yeah, it's not that quotable of a movie for how important it has been to film culture. Yeah. But it maintains its status and and rightfully so, I would say. So do you want to hear the story about how this movie got made? Yeah. Tell us how this thing happened. All right. In 1938, John W. Campbell Jr. wrote a novella called Who Goes There? about a team of people trapped in an Antarctic research outpost with an alien monster that can imitate any living being. You might think that sounds like a premise ripe for a film adaptation, and damn it, you'd be right. The story was adapted into a 1951 film titled The Thing from Another World, though due to budgetary constraints and the state of visual effects at the time, the titular thing does not shapeshift and is much more humanoid than the alien in the original story. And he speaks in a suave mid-Atlantic accent. Fast forward to the mid-1970s and another adaptation of Who Goes There would be planned after producers David Foster and Lawrence Terman presented a proposal to Universal Pictures, but this was meant to be a much more faithful adaptation of the original story than the 1951 film. John Carpenter would be in the running to helm the project as early as 1976, but Universal preferred Texas Chainsaw Massacre director Toby Hooper as they already had him under contract. They'd just signed him to a five massacre deal. Unsatisfied with Hooper's concept for the movie, the producers removed him from the project and the search continued to find a filmmaker up to the task. John Landis was strongly considered, but eventually the studio returned to Carpenter, who now had a couple bona fide hits under his belt with Halloween and the Fog. Is that a bona fide hit under your belt, or are you just happy to see me? Carpenter tapped Bad News Bears writer Bill Lancaster to write the script and cast his newly minted Escape from New York star Kurt Russell as the protagonist McCready. Now, simply named The Thing, filming began on August 24, 1981 in Juneau, Alaska, with additional filming taking place on the Universal lot and principal photography taking place in Stewart, British Columbia. Filming would last about 12 weeks, and it was a difficult shoot, as the sets were climate controlled to 28 degrees Fahrenheit. By the end, Wilford Brimley had caught a bad case of freezer burn. 21-year-old Rob Bottin oversaw the special effects of the film and spent a year living on the Universal lot to finish the effects. He would eventually be hospitalized for exhaustion, double pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer brought on by the stress of working on the movie. Also, his head came off, sprouted legs, and ran away. Released on June 25th, 1982, the same day as fellow beloved box office bomb Blade Runner, the movie was a box office flop, earning $3.1 million its opening weekend to finish in 8th place. It would drop out of the top 10 after only 3 weeks. The film was savaged by critics upon release, with horror, sci-fi, fantasy magazine, Cinefantastique printing an issue with the thing on the cover asking, is this the most hated movie of all time. The film's reputation would greatly improve upon its home video release and subsequent television appearances, and it is now considered one of the great horror movies of all time. What a journey. Started out in the cold, running like a dog across the tundra, (laughs) trying to escape the critics. I know it's very serious. I don't mean to make light of his condition, but doesn't double pneumonia sound like something a kid trying to call out from school and pretend to be his (laughs) parent would say like, no, it's worse than pneumonia. He's got double pneumonia. It doesn't sound like a real thing. (laughs) I thought that only happened to people in the 50s and earlier. Like polio? (laughs) It was polio and double pneumonia. That's what everyone had prior to 1950. And then they took care of it. Anyway, that was my sidebar about double pneumonia being a funny (laughs) But so this movie, I knew it didn't do great upon release. It had a $15 million budget, only ended up making 19 million total. I did not, however, realize how hated it was when it came out until I really started researching it for this pod. 
It's wild. The critics kind of whipped themselves into a frenzy of hatred. Like they went, they took it too far. Yeah. It felt mean spirited at a point, right? Just because it's not to your taste does not mean you need to call people that enjoy it morons, which one critic actually did. Oh, wow. We'll talk about the reasons why this movie pushes you back in your chair and makes you happy. But it's supposed to be repulsive. Yeah. Like it's a feature, not a bug, at least as far as Carpenter and, and the other filmmakers were concerned. But yeah, I do have a couple choice quotes that I saved from critics. Oh yeah. Let's hear. David Anson of Newsweek called it an example of the new aesthetic, atrocity for atrocity's sake. Vincent Camby for the New York Times called it the quintessential moron movie of the 80s, which is what I was referencing earlier. Instant junk and a wretched excess. And then probably the worst or best one, depending how much you value creative wordplay. Alan Spencer for Starlog said that John Carpenter was never meant to direct science fiction horror movies. He is better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. Wow. That is harsh. This is after Halloween in the Fog. Imagine having the balls to say John Carpenter was never meant to direct horror movies. Yeah. After those two movies already are out. Where the fuck do you get off? Yeah, and like Halloween was a hit. It was a big hit. It launched a generation of slasher films. It defined a genre if it did not actually create it. The Fog was a more modest hit, but still a successful movie. Feels like a reach. I know Wikipedia wasn't around back them but like this guy made movies that almost everybody unanimously liked before this and just- and it's weird that some of these most negative and harsh reviews come out of genre mags from Starlog right. from Cinefantastique like you get at the New York Times okay maybe they're old and stuffy and their critic is going to not be ready to embrace the new breed of horror movies but from within your own club. You'd think this would be right up their alley, like a sci-fi horror magazine shitting on The Thing is unheard of. Can you imagine if Fangoria came out with an issue all about how bad The Thing is? I don't know if they're still a magazine. They definitely exist still. Maybe not in the written form, but you get it. The Thing is hollowed ground now, and it's very jarring to see these kind of takes. And I wonder how many of them had to publish some kind of update in a couple of years. Yeah, that's what makes you think that they're kind of just piling on. That Did they each like individually go, I'm so offended I have to go tear John Carpenter apart publicly? I think it becomes a thing, like you see it with restaurant critics. Like when Guy Fieri opened his Times Square restaurant a few years ago, everyone was trying their hand at who could have the most brutal review to get the most press. It feels like a game of one-upsmanship at some point where you're just trying to be like, oh, I wonder if I can get like some attention about how mean my review is. That's a little unfortunate. And I get why a lot of people couldn't deal with this movie, but I feel like there are movies that have subject matter and deal with certain subject matters in a way that is like morally objectionable. And in those instances, I think it's acceptable to be almost cruel in your critique of it. But I don't think this is one of them. It's an alien invasion story. It certainly has allegories to real world issues, right. but I don't think it handles them clumsily at all. I think it, it handles them with some measure of grace. Yeah. We roasted Adam Sandler because- Because he fucking deserved it. He offended us. I don't know. Maybe it's dog lovers and they just didn't know how to say that or articulate what their problem was with the movie. I am a dog lover too. So I do have some, I wouldn't say I have issues with that scene because it does what it set out to do. We'll talk about that when we talk about it, I guess. Yeah. All right. Do you want to walk us through the first stage of this movie? Sure. Here we go. In the icy cold of Antarctica. Two Norwegians in a helicopter frantically chase a dog through the snow and onto an American research base. In their wild efforts to shoot or blow up the dog, the Norwegians themselves are killed and the Americans adopt the cute creature into their own kennel. The American team doctor, Copper, and helicopter pilot, R.J. McCready, played by Kurt Russell, fly out to investigate what brought this on. And they learn that the Norwegian team is all dead and their base is destroyed. They find a two-faced burned corpse in the wreckage and decide to bring it back with them. Team by Biologist Blair does an autopsy on the twisted body, but finds it's pretty normal on the inside. That night, in the kennel, the adopted doggo turns into a snarling alien monster and attacks all the other puppers until the mechanic childs blasts it with a flamethrower. Then Blair does an autopsy on the dog thing and figures it all out. This is an alien that violently attacks and absorbs other life forms, then imitates their exact appearance. First of all, I noticed you didn't mention what actor plays Childs. I think at this point we might have to start paying Keith David residuals. This is now his fourth appearance on Blast Zone in only 35 episodes. The podcast, the new title, it's now called The Keith David Show featuring Blast Zone. I wouldn't be mad. I love Keith David. <laughs> this is his first film role. Yeah, so pretty cool. We're getting to see the genesis of his, his stardom. He's a young man in this. He's strapping... He is just a presence on the screen. We love him. Sorry to keep putting him on blast, but we love to have him in the zone. I feel like every time we've had him on a movie, though, we've been like, well, the best part of this movie is 
Keith David, obviously. He's always one <laughs> so, of the best parts. Maybe not in the thing, because there's so many good parts about this movie. Yeah. You know? But his character is one of the more interesting and dynamic. He's just cool. Cool setup, though, for this movie. Interesting intro with just some dudes in a helicopter trying to murder a dog. Yeah, it throws you right in. I love that about it. This is a movie that's based on this very classical sci-fi premise. Like you said, it's based on an old-fashioned sci-fi short story from 1938. So it has a very intriguing premise that's heady, that's intellectual. But then, bam, it throws you into this thing where there's this intense drama going on. And once you later learn in what actually drove that, you go, oh my God, that's obvious what they were doing and they were in the right. But you see it from the perspective of the Americans and you're like, what the fuck are they doing? They're chasing a dog. They're sh- shooting randomly at people. They're acting like crazy people. Uh, and of course they are. Right. They don't speak the same language. Uh, so there's a language barrier there. They can't explain to each other right. what exactly is going on. I do want to say, I don't think I could hit that dog from <laughs> a moving helicopter with a rifle, but that guy had 30 shots at that dog. Didn't get him once. Maybe that wasn't their main pilot because like, slow down, go at the same speed as the dog. Stop like right. blasting past the dog at a hundred miles an hour and try to take one shot as you <laughs> zoom by. I'm like, it's a helicopter hover for God's sake. But also we, we know bullets don't do anything to it. So even if they shot him, they would have had to land, run up to the corpse, which That's is probably true. now turning into an alien and right. set it on fire. Well, so. he had a crate full of fucking grenades, which everyone yeah. does in the Antarctic. So apparently. what are they studying in Antarctica? Everyone <laughs> has a fucking arsenal. The Americans have flamethrowers, just multiple flamethrowers, caches of weapons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a big glass case with shotguns, assault rifles. The base commander wears a six gun on his hip with a belt full of bullets. <laughs> like It's a scientific outpost. It's a research thing. I, I saw it tried to be explained away as Cold War panic because there's a Russian base not far from them, apparently. Maybe, but that feels like a way to explain it after the fact. Is it polar bears? Are there polar bears in Antarctica? I forget where they're. There sure are. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there are. Okay. So maybe that's it. Also, I just, I love the setting. I'm I'm a sucker for scientific outposts in Antarctica. I follow a bunch of TikTok accounts that are just people living on them. Oh, really? Yeah. So I could just see what their daily lives are like. It's very intriguing to me. So I really like this. Just the premise for this movie is in my sweet spot. I mean, the base feels really real to me when you realize that they just built this shit. I'm like, they must have filmed on a real base, right? But no, they just came in with a construction crew and built a bunch of buildings. What do they think a base looks like? But to me, it feels really real. How does it compare to the real stuff that you see on TikTok? I'd say it's fairly accurate. I don't think anyone's going to be breaking the windows on a real Antarctica base to shoot out of them because then you're going to get real fucking cold. But aside from that, I'd say it's pretty spot on. And cool little feature is instead of building a second set, for the Norwegian base, they just used the burnt one. Yeah, from that the was American smart. base. They went back after the fact and filmed the scenes of the Norwegian base. Waste not, want not. Yeah, right. That's just smart. Yeah. Carpenter knew he needed a ton of money for the effects, so I guess he tried to save money where he could. Speaking of breaking out windows, let's talk about that scene because the uh, so the base commander, although maybe they never name what his title is, Gary. No, they never do. Yeah, but he walks around wearing khakis and a gun on his belt, and he's the Lloyd Bridges sort of crusty old guy. For some reason, when the Norwegians charge up, everybody puts their jackets on and runs outside to see why is this helicopter landing? What are these gunshots? What are these explosions? Not Gary. He's the commander. He stays inside. He peeks out a little window. And then, because he's still in charge, when he sees that the Norwegian is shooting and hitting his guys, he fucking busts out his window with the six gun like it's a Western from the 50s. Like, he does that little thing where you just go, and knock the pieces (laughs) of glass out of the way, and then shoot kind of alligator arms, shoot out the window in front of you. And it's, to me, I think that's just funny. It's part of the great drama, because he shoots the guy right in the eye, and it's brutal, and it's part of the... The good shot from that distance so good. with that like, alligator armed, like you said. <laughs> yeah, the Norwegian is like running into his line of sight and he just gets a bullet right in the eye immediately. You get the vibe that some of these dudes were in Vietnam. Yeah. So maybe that's where his instincts kicked in. I think there's hints of MacReady to having PTSD and having served as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of where his authority comes from as he was like a high rank in Vietnam. And now he just kind of has that air about him. He decided he's the one military guy who's going to maintain discipline on this base. When in fact, when the shit goes down, he kind of buckles and everyone just sort of instinctively turns to MacReady and is like, dude, you're daddy now. Please look after us. Well, when you're looking like Kurt Russell looks in this movie, <laughs> just he's pretty much 80% hair. <laughs> he looks his face. So good. He's just got these icy blue eyes and this long, lustrous hair and beard. 
He's like your textbook action hero looking motherfucker. He looks so cool. He's so chill, though. I love this performance. And if you are into John Carpenter at all and you saw Kurt Russell in Escape from New York, he is playing a very broad hero character, right? Like in Escape from New York, he is a action figure. He is just like a cartoon of an action hero guy. He's got stripey tight pants and boots and a and an eye patch and tight tank top. He's got every accessory, including a cobra tattoo that goes down his belly and under his waistband. Does he have a feather earring? Maybe not, but he, he probably close. does. Yeah. yeah. So he went totally opposite in this. He is the most low-key action hero and you love him for it because he's just exudes a real confidence and uh quiet competence. Yeah, and his instincts in this movie are pretty dead on throughout. McCready's just like a good, competent hero, which is kind of what you hope for in a scary movie because people are always doing dumb shit. I don't know if that was such a trope in the 80s, the idiot protagonists in horror movies, but watching it through the lens of a millennial, it's nice to see a horror movie where people actually know what they're doing. They're just outmatched. Yeah. They're all low key. They're all smart. They do what they do. They don't spend too much time freaking out and getting things wrong. They might accept the premise a little too quickly. Yeah. They do have to move quickly. The movie moves fast and there are shots of exposition strung through it that pop out at different points to get you on board. Because John Carpenter is like, I don't have patience to have him sit around wondering what the fuck's going on. I'm, I'm going to lay it out. And it works because the people giving you the exposition are Kurt Russell and Wilford Brimley, who both just kick ass. And even when they're just laying out facts, it's fun to watch them. Just breaking the gravitas meter with those two. Yeah. Also, who has jurisdiction over an Antarctic murder? You know, This is a good question. This is probably why Gary carries a pistol on his hip, because there's no law down there. There's no law. You just bury that <laughs> motherfucker in the snow. No one's going to find him. Yeah. It's Wild West out there. It's pretty crazy. There's no cops. No one country has ownership of Antarctica. There's no government there. Yeah, they say that to themselves. They're like, nobody's coming. We're on our own. It is very sort of Wild West outpost. It has parallels to the themes of some of the old Westerns. Yeah, it does. I guess you could look at the thing as like an invading force and it it does take on almost like a assault on Precinct 13. Yeah element to it. Which itself is an homage to an old Western where it's an outpost in Native American territory, right? Yeah, actually, Godless was a Netflix miniseries recently that was actually really good. And along those lines, if you're looking for something that scratches that itch, that's a little more recent. I've heard of that. I got to check that out. Yeah. Jeff Daniels is really good in it. And Scoot McNary, you can't go wrong with Scoot McNary. He'd be my pick for a modern day McCready if they ever had to remake this. So we got to talk about the dog because maybe not the most famous scene from the movie, but definitely one of the most famous and probably the one where a lot of people checked out for good. It's very hard to watch because it's the first time we're really getting a hint at how wrong things are going. So they drive the point home by dwelling on it for a long time. Yeah, it explodes into action. Like they give you some hints of the horror because we see the Norwegian base. You see there's some dead people there. We bring the corpse Some home. corpses that don't look quite right. Yeah, we do an autopsy, but that's Wilford Brimley pulling out a liver real slow and just commenting on it. I hate autopsy scenes and this movie has a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah, like they always they, creep me out. They keep going back for more autopsies, but those are kind of low key, but they give you an idea that, okay, it's going to be ugly. But then this dog who you've been charmed by because this dog, we have to mention, fantastic actor, one of the best actors in the movie. This dog is so good. He never looks at the camera. He hits his marks. He exudes an air of the friendliness you would expect from a dog at times. And then when he has to like turn on the intensity, he does it. He does. He's acting with his eyes. Like Carpenter does scenes like he's a human actor where they just take a shot of the dog's face and he's acting with his damn eyes. Like he's playing a character of an alien in the disguise of a dog. It's quite a performance. It's got layers. And then when he just stands there and starts growling, I was like, oh no. Yeah. Like, They're like, well, why is this dog so wandering around the base? Put him in the kennel with the other dogs. This is before they suspect anything. And he, the dog handler, Clark is the dog handler's name. He walks him in there kind of quiet. And the dog is like, you just see it in his eyes. He quietly walks in. He's like, okay, I see. They're locking me in here. I hear the guy locking the gate behind me, looking around. He's checking out the other dogs he's up against. He's like, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to pull some shit. And man, does he pull some shit. He pulls some shit. (laughs) He starts morphing into this alien creature that is just horrifying. His face explodes and (laughs) flowers into like, it looks almost like a flower, but with a tentacle coming out of it. Yeah. It's like a banana peel. He goes from zero to a hundred miles an hour, pretty fast in there. And there's like the other dogs are like literally 
fighting this chain link fence to try to get out and escape and they can't. That is it really, is, that's the part where if you're a dog fan and you're not sure if you're a horror fan, you're like, okay, I can't take this because this poor dog, they're barking, they're freaking because this thing is like writhing. These tentacles are coming out. These insect legs are springing out from the middle of its body. It's absolutely horrifying. And this one dog, they go back to him a couple times and he's biting pieces of the chain link fence out, which must be horribly painful for him, but he's trying to get out of this trap that he's in and it's fucking tragic, man. It's gut-wrenching. Yeah. It's just, it was very painful to watch. And then the dogs are obviously in distress, which is always going to be a difficult thing to watch for most yeah. people. I think most people are very empathetic towards dogs. You have to add on to that the absolute insanity of what this dog is turning into. It looks more alien than really any alien thing we've seen in a movie before or since. They do a good job of making this thing look nothing like anything. There's no reference point to it, except some of them are vaguely arachnid looking. Right. That's as close as you can get to drawing a parallel to the real world. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got these gross tentacles that are whipping around frantically and making this horrible noise. And then these insectoid legs. It's really offensive to the mind because it's asymmetrical and it doesn't make sense. And it's just horrifying in every different way. It's almost Lovecraftian in the way that they used to describe the elder gods as like your brain can't really comprehend their true form. Yeah, it's got some of that. It would drive you insane. And then Carpenter obviously went back to that well later. Yeah. But yes, obviously very effective because I've seen this movie so many times and we're still talking about it in these kind of hushed, reverent tones. But it's fucked up, man. It's scary as <laughs> yeah. shit. It's hard. And so at this point, I don't blame Vincent Camby or whoever for like, I got to walk out of this movie. This movie is fucked up. Fuck this movie. You could say that. Like I knew what I was getting into and I still had to steal myself and keep a distance from the screen and not look too closely at this stuff. At least on the first watch, you kind of get desensitized, which is maybe not that good for you as a human being, but you do get desensitized on repeat watches. If you're desensitized to the monsters and the thing, then like you got to take a break. But who the fuck am I to talk, right? (laughs) Oh man. So here now we talked about how this movie horrified us into a coma, as Master Shake would say. There's some funny things too. You pointed out to me the transitions. John Carpenter, for some reason, likes these little fade to blacks, like he's going to a commercial break. Why is he doing that in a movie? I have no idea what these scenes are. There's like maybe three of them in the movie that really stick out. One of them is after when Blair cuts open the dog thing after it's been burned. There's like a very obvious cut to black. It feels like you're watching it on TV, but you're not. You're watching a Blu-ray of it. Yeah. You're like, oh, did I get the TV edit? Because yeah, you're waiting for a Dawn commercial to pop up. And there's no way you got the TV edit at this point because you've already seen some of the most horrifying gore (laughs) you'll ever see in any movie. It's like Carpenter kind of leaning into his B-movie tendencies in a way. (laughs) But were they teaching that at USC film school in the 60s? Because he does that in Halloween too. I just watched, I rewatched Halloween and prep for this. And there's a few places where it just does those fade to blacks and back up straight like we're going to commercial. Maybe it didn't mean that at that time. I wonder if there's other director's work that we would see this in that we go, oh, that's where that came from. Yeah, it's an interesting question that I would love to dig into more because it could have just been a motif of the era that was being phased out. For us, it signals something very different. Yeah, it could have been at the tail end of its usefulness in film. So now it feels really anachronistic. It's weird. It's funny. Yeah, it was very strange. I just noticed that. I was like, huh. And then he does it again later. And I was like, it doesn't fit this movie at all because the movie's so tense and propulsive. Yeah, there's no reason to sort of close your eyes for a moment and take a breath. And also one of them I remember happens where it's just like some guys inside going, we need to go outside. And then instead of just cutting to them outside, it takes a break, goes to sleep and wakes up and they're going outside. It's like, why did we just nod off for a second there? I wonder if it's like to signify the end of an act, like the same way we break up a story into three acts. Yeah, I feel like there's three of them in the movie. Like he's pulling the curtain symbolically. Yeah, it could be, but it doesn't have the intended effect, I'm sure, because now it just kind of takes me out of the moment when I see it. Yeah. And then McCready McCready pouring his whiskey into a computer because it beat him at chess was kind of a funny moment, but very wasteful. Computers were super expensive back then. I know, man. How is he going to get that back? Is he fixing his own computer every morning after he gets drunk and fucks it up at night? That was his character moment. That's when you meet him. He pours himself a drink. He has like some killer ice cubes. Yeah. He makes a nice jambi scotch on the rocks. Probably just went outside and pulled him out of the ground. (laughs) I just... Cracked one off a glacier. A little J&B blended scotch. It's garbage scotch. <laughs> it's not good. They're not drinking good liquor in this movie. But I feel like in 1982, it just was not easy to get good liquor. People, they didn't have access to this sort of wines and spirits culture that we do today. Yeah, it's, it's very much a thing now to have an entire aisle of scotch at the liquor store. But that was right. not the case back then. As silly as the scene is, because he ruins probably several thousand dollars worth of equipment that they <laughs> might need. It does achieve some things because he's playing chess. 
which is like, oh, he's a little bit of an intellect. He's got something more going on than maybe right. these guys that are just sitting around smoking weed, listening to records. Maybe he's got a little more going on than them. But then the pouring the whiskey on shows like, oh, he's a bad boy too. Like he doesn't care. Yeah. It achieves a couple things, even though it is jarring how wasteful he is. It's a nice tight character moment. It's funny in that the, a computer like that, first of all, didn't exist at that time. Right. So that in itself was science fiction. But then the idea that if it did exist and you had one on an Antarctic base that you would just destroy it because you got pissed because you lost one game of chess. The computers in this movie do some extraordinary things, which we'll talk about in the they next do. section. Some things that I don't even know if computers today could do. Something else I picked up on that scene that's actually I think is important and that I didn't pick up on on the first watch. Here's a, a note I'll give to John Carpenter to the edit is, so you're meeting these guys. A bunch of them are in their rec room, right? They're playing ping pong. They're sitting around at a table together. And then it cuts over to McCready pouring his scotch and playing with the computer. And I had just assumed he was in one of the corners of that room because it cuts quickly to him. And the actual key point of that scene, what you learn is after he busts the computer, is he steps outside the door of his shack. And here are 11 guys out of 12 on this base that are hanging out in the rec room together. And old RJ McCready lives in a shack. He is like a serious loner in this. And I feel like that was one of the key points, character points of that scene that I didn't pick up on until rewatch. Yeah, it does. It It's trying to make a point that he's a little bit apart from the rest of the group, but it yeah. is not as clear as it could have been. I agree. But have your own little shack in Antarctica. Isn't that the dream for uh, an introvert? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could see myself staying in my shack with a long winter. Right. Playing chess. I wouldn't play chess. I would just watch the Queen's Gambit or something. Terrible <laughs> yeah. at chess. All right. Should I walk us through the middle section of the movie? Yeah, let's hear what happens next. All right. So McCready and friends go back out on the ice and discover where the Norwegians had dug up a giant flying saucer proving that the thing they unleashed is from another world. Back at the base, Blair has calculated that the thing could pretty quickly destroy all life on Earth, and the guys start to wonder whether it's going to spread among them. Meanwhile, the twisted Norwegian corpse oozes out some goo that infects Bennings, and the whole crew watches as McCready torches the half-formed imitation Bennings with a barrel of kerosene. Then Blair fully loses his shit and destroys all the base vehicles and radio to prevent the thing getting out or anyone else coming in. They subdue Blair and lock him in the tool shed so he can't do any more damage. A massive storm arrives and the group must hunker down together as they become more and more distrustful of each other. They find a clue that makes them suspect McCready, but he threatens to blow them all up with dynamite if they fuck with him. Norris collapses with a heart attack, but when Copper goes to defibrillate him, Norris's belly opens up in a big toothy mouth and bites the doctor's arms off. He then transforms into two separate monsters, but McCready manages to torch them both. The <laughs> defibrillator scene is fucking terrifying. That's got to be the peak of thing horror in this movie. There's a big climax with a bigger, more dangerous thing at the very end, but it's nothing like this scene in terms of sheer horrifying revulsion. When I think back on this movie, or even when I talk about it with people, like we never talk about the end of the movie. We talk about the end of the movie as in the two characters that are left and what their fates really are and, and who they really are, but not like the fight with the the bigger monster, who I won't spoil who, who it's made of yet. But that doesn't really come up because maybe there's just some fatigue by that point because they do a good job on the character at the end. And it looks horrifying, but I don't know, maybe because they knew what they were looking for. This was more tense because it kind of comes out of nowhere. Like you knew they were going to have a big showdown at the end. Yeah, it's all rolling downhill towards that moment. You're like, it's coming. It's getting bigger and badder. McCready's going to try to blow it up. Is he going to do it? But you're just ready for the big fight scene here. This thing catches you by surprise. And then it just ramps up to 1,000. If the dog went zero to 60, this thing is just going supersonic on you. Yeah. The effects in this scene are incredible. A head literally sprouts legs and runs away. The head's upside down too, which makes it even weirder. Yeah. It's more horrifying. The way the head separates itself from the body. If you haven't seen this movie and you're listening to us now, you're probably trying to picture all this stuff and you can't. You can't. It really defies explanation. But okay. It's bad. It's probably just about as bad as your mind can think about it. This guy sprouts a thing that climbs up to the ceiling, but meanwhile, his head decides it's got to go. He's lying on this table and his head just starts stretching itself out. And as this next skin tears away, everything underneath is green tubes and shit spraying out. So it's really gross. It's gross enough that a person's head would pull itself violently off of its body, but just the way it looks and the faces it's making as it does it, pulls it over the edge of the table till it finally snaps all the green goo and gets away. And then it sprouts eye stalks and legs and it's making noises. It is so horrible. It is very upsetting. I think the Bennings scene is almost as horrible in a different way. 
because the noises Bennings makes when they set him on fire or right before they set him on fire yeah. are like more haunting, less terrifying and more haunting, I guess is how I would say it. It's nice that the movie has a moment like that, which is actually like a very cool, chill inducing, creepy kind of scary that's not just like drilling you into the ground with gore. It's very cool. Bennings is, he has a gross out moment too, where Windows sees him sort of half transformed and then they come back looking for him and he's already moved on and they catch him out in the snow and he's like almost fully transformed transformed except his hands are these long distended gross lobster claw things he's like oh you got me although he can't speak anymore so he just looks at them with these eyes he gives them these eyes and just groans and it's fucking chilling yeah the groan it reminded me of nothing more than the bear from annihilation yeah. if you've seen Anni- like that bear i think i mentioned it on the podcast before but that thing mm-hmm. fucked me up but it's that similar thing where like it's it's just wrong the noise it's making it just yeah. messes with your head because it doesn't belong there and it's just so weird because everyone surrounds him he's on his knees he's almost pleading he's got his hands out and he's looking back sort of over his shoulder like you fucking got me like this is it. This is the end for me. And then McCready kicks over the big barrel, whatever that is, kerosene or gasoline, torches them pretty good. And they all just watch. It's like a weird, creepy ritual. Yeah. I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier with the green blood and goo. I think that's important for why the effects work so well, because the 2011 thing, I don't hate it as much as a lot of people do. I think it gets some things right. and it, It's actually a prequel. It takes place on the Norwegian base and kind of documents how things went wrong there. But I noticed that for one thing, they use a lot more CGI in that movie than practical effects, which just makes it, you kind of know what's happening when you're seeing CGI. It's not an actual physical thing you could touch. It's done with a computer. As effective yeah. as it is, you could still tell. Yeah. So that kind of dampens the terror a little bit. But also all the blood and stuff that comes out of the things in that movie is red. It just looks like regular gore. Okay. And I don't know, that takes something away from the experience I felt. Yeah, this thing goes in some different directions with color. There is a lot of red stuff coming out of him too, but there's the injection of the green and he has some white foamy green stuff that he sprays when he's a dog and he sprays it on the other dog. Just the sort of randomness of all the different forms and colors and shapes that it takes is part of its disgusting evil. Yeah, it feels genuinely alien. Like yeah. not of this world. Yeah. As much as a xenomorph is an iconic design, it still has two legs and two arms and a head and a torso. Yeah. And we talked about the Norris thing. Like the thing that gets attention is the head that creeps off and turns into a creeping eye stock lobster. And then of course the belly opening up. Stomach jaws. Is the, the third piece of Norris is this thing that pops up. It grabs onto the ceiling. It pulls itself up. It's got a half deformed Norris face on it, but it's got like half of it's some kind of fleshy bagpipes and it's got long tentacles and it's got creepy <laughs> I could insect listen legs. to Ian describe the monsters from the thing all day. Like it's just it's right? such it's horrifying like descriptions. A, it's got like a big air sack that's connecting it in the middle. It's just really obscenely not of this world, like you said. Yeah, it's grotesque, but it's awesome at the same time. Yeah, Yeah, once you get over it, if you can get over it, and some people never will, but if you can get over it, and I can be the example of somebody who earlier in my life, I thought I probably would have never wanted to stomach those scenes. But now that I've sort of hardened myself and formed a callus on my gross organs, I can watch it. And yeah, you can appreciate how crazy it is and how it really plays into the sci-fi premise and what it does for this movie and these men who seem like normal guys and they're all standing around and having to see the shit happen and then figure out what to do. Yeah. just We're talking a lot about how well the movie's aged. We got to talk about the thing that has aged the worst, which we alluded to in the first section, which is Blair's computer that somehow predicts to the hour how long it would take for the thing to fully assimilate the human race. You have to suspend your disbelief there. Imagine that's a placeholder for what computers will become. I don't know. How was he supposed to have possessed this supercomputer in 1982 in the Antarctic? Who's sending these amazing computers down to do biology on whatever lives in the fucking ice sheets? Unless we want to go with like a conspiracy theory that they were really down there on some government espionage shit. And that's why they had such a big budget for flamethrowers and computers. That would explain (laughs) a lot. Yeah. So this thing, the graphics are terrible. It's got a screen that can show a total of 180 characters on it, typing in these big letters. And yet it speaks in natural language. Like it doesn't speak it, but it types out sentences to him. It didn't just solve an equation and tell him a number. And he's like, oh my God, this number means this. It explained it to him in a sentence, what's going to happen. I think Fugues is 
is on the other side with a pen and paper doing the math and then just <laughs> typing it in and sending it to Blair. So he thinks that it's coming from the computer. Wilford Brimley is just like, you whippersnappers with your technology. And the funny little touch that I noticed on the last rewatch is as the computer is showing the simulation of one cell slowly eating another cell in 8-bit graphics, if it's even 8-bits, I don't know how many bits that was. There wasn't, there was two uh, colors on the whole damn screen. It might be a bit. <laughs> it was one-bit <laughs> graphics. He's timing it. He's got a golden pocket watch in his hand and it's clicking loudly and he's watching the screen. And by noticing how many seconds pass as this crude animation occurs, that's what helped him figure out how long we had to live on the earth. All right. So so it's not a perfect movie, but it's close. It's not, it's not but we excuse those things because they're cute and they're funny and they're like a funny relic of a time. Right. Uh, so what else from this section did we want to touch on before we, we get to the, the big finish? Let's talk about the look of the film because we've went through two acts of this already. And like you said, the base is really cool. And part of it is just the visuals of the film. Every time they're outside, the snow is lit in this eerie blue color. It just establishes this really cool look. And they're all carrying these flares that go off in this bright red or fuchsia. There's a real elegance to the look of the film. And Kurt Russell, especially, but everyone who goes outside gets really fucking cold. And they keep coming back in and their faces are various shades of extreme pale. So Kurt Russell constantly with snow in his beard and his face gone this stark white and makes for this interesting thing that like, yeah, these people are kind of suffering or they're in this weird place that sort of transports you to where they are. I think one of the appeals of setting your movie in such an isolated, uninhabited area is it does feel alien in a sense. It feels like one of the last great unexplored places in the world. And it helps establish an element of like anything could happen because what do we really know about Antarctica? It's this massive landmass and he films it almost, I don't know, I get like an underwater vibe from the outside scene, the way it's filmed, especially at night when they're outside, everything's dark, but then there's pops of color. Like you said, that almost like mimic coral to me. It's just a really interestingly shot film and well-made. There's a nice contrast between the starkly real, right? The shacks and the buildings look really real and lived in and all the stuff looks really authentic. And yet the place is lit with this kind of glow that's hyper real or is somewhat mystical almost when you're outside. It gives it this weird quality that just, I don't know, it's really aesthetically pleasing. I think John Carpenter's always been a very good visual filmmaker. We'll get into kind of how this movie was a little bit of a departure for him because all he had to do was focus on directing this movie when compared to the rest of his work, he tends to wear 15 hats on all his film sets. Yeah. But I feel like the extra effort he got to put into establishing the setting of the movie really pays off in a way that one of the things that makes it feel timeless, we just talked about how Blair's computer dates it pretty badly, but everything else about the movie feels like it fits. It's very contemporary. Yeah. You could swap out the computer screen and uh, and not have to change almost anything else to make a contemporary movie. Except like Palmer would be making TikToks or something if it took place in 2021. So do you want to walk us through the end of the movie? Here we go. So after seeing Norris's death, McCready figures out that each part of the thing is a whole and will act independently in self-preservation. He ties everybody up and he takes a sample of each man's blood. One at a time, he applies a hot wire to the blood and releases each man in turn as his blood does nothing more than sizzle. But when he gets to Palmer's blood, it screams and jumps out of the dish. Palmer then transforms into a monster and infects another guy, Windows, before McCready can burn them both. The surviving men go to test Blair, but he's not in the tool shed. Underneath the shed, they find an ice cave where Blair has been building a small spaceship, proving he's the one remaining thing. They decide to burn down the whole camp to prevent Blair Thing from hibernating there. As they set explosives, the monster gets two of the guys, but McCready manages to throw a stick of dynamite, triggering massive explosions. In the burning wreckage of the camp, McCready meets Childs, who offers an excuse for how he got separated from the rest of them earlier. Neither man knows if the other is a thing but they share a drink of scotch and wait to see what happens. Man, what a movie. So <laughs> the blood test scene, I would say, is probably the most famous scene from the movie. Not the goriest or, or most exciting visually, but just kind of the genius of the setup and the way it's executed is paid off super great. You mentioned there's no tense score really blaring in the background of the scene. It's just yeah. silence and whatever minimal dialogue there is and the wind outside. And it really makes it feel like... You're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You can hear a pin drop in between these scenes. It's a cool concept. You can get it right away, but it, it's a little bit complicated to pull off in terms of what you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to write a scene 
where they get blood. How many guys are there and how'd they all get tied up? How'd they get blood out of them? How'd they label all these Petri dishes and how's he going to get a hot wire? They handle all the logistics of it really smoothly. So you don't spend any time bumping on that with your mind trying to figure out how he did it. And Kurt Russell talks his way through the expositional parts of the scene to set up. He's like, here's what I'm going to do. And it's just cool when he's telling you about it. So like they take a scene that has a, a complex, interesting setup, strip it down, get it rolling really fast. And then it's just those moments of holding up somebody's blood and their name is on the side of the Petri dish. So you know who's about to get tested and they're all tied up together and like such great moments of tension. Yeah. And when we find out it's Palmer and he just starts convulsing. Oh my God. Making like this eerie noise. It's just so creepy. And the helplessness of the other characters being tied up next to him while it's happening is just insane. Yeah. You feel that tension there. Like, get me the fuck out of here. Meanwhile, Palmer is melting. Like he just looked at the Ark of the Covenant, man. He is getting boiled down. But like every time it cuts back to him, he's already gone to some other stage of transformation that's more horrific than the last. It's a really gross thing that he becomes. And he kind of like, you say he infects windows, which I think is putting it mildly. Yeah. (laughs) He like fucking picks him up with his little weird thing mouth and is just dangling him around the room. (laughs) Yeah. His head splits in half sideways, shoots out a tentacle, pulls windows, head into the mouth that is his neck and chomps him and flips him around. (laughs) It's fucked up. We got to cover the 2011 thing just so I can hear Ian describe more monsters. He just want me to do a reading. So then he takes his neck mouth and tentacles, (laughs) which is very funny to me. Yeah, he's like (laughs) flipping around. He's beating him. He's like beating him against the ceiling and the floor. He's throwing him into walls and shit. Yeah. But he's still, he's still windows at that point for a little longer. A little bit. But yeah, then McCready zaps them both. The other guys were lucky. And Windows kind of had it coming. Windows did one of those things that you go, okay, Carpenter is doing some cool horror stuff. He's doing it smart. He's not making the characters dumb. But Windows kind of stood Windows there. Kinda stupid. Yeah, he's kind of. He had a flamethrower in his hands. All he had to do was pull the trigger. And he sat there and stared at his friend Palmer's distorted, splitting open face. Gave him like five seconds to throw a tentacle out. And then it was all over for him. Yeah, that's like the most horror movie thing any character does in this movie. It's yeah. just hesitating. Like, you've already seen what these things become and what they can do to people. You should not have any hesitation. Yeah. Also, like, these are your coworkers. They're not your family. Yeah, I know. And it's funny, though, there's an opposite example of that, of this horror movie trope of the characters freezing and letting the bad guy get the better of them is, like you said, these guys are already traumatized. You would think they would be freaking out. And McCready, the moment somebody comes for him, who actually turns out to not have been a thing, it was Clark. Clark was just like, I'm worried about McCready. I'm going to attack him with the scalpel. And McCready instantly draws on him and shoots him through the head. That was more the realistic version of like, these guys are ready to kill each other if anybody even so much as flinches. Right. It's interesting to think if there were more scenes of them just getting it wrong, assuming somebody's a thing and being wrong about it and kind of the moral implications of that and the the trauma that would come with making that call and fucking it up. But, you know, the movies, it's a movie. It's only got so much room. Not a miniseries. Explore these things. Yeah. In a miniseries, you could have some fucked up shit happen. Right. I think that would be an interesting road to go down. But, you know, this movie's for as much plot as there is, it's not overly long. I think it's like an hour and 49 minutes. So it's not not a two hour plus movie. It, It gets a lot accomplished in a small amount of time. Yeah, it's tight and it still manages to seem calm and settled in a lot of places and have quiet moments where tension builds. So it does a lot and it's a very reasonable amount of time. We got to talk about the ending because it's one of the most debated endings, I would say, in movie history, right? It is a very ambiguous ending. There is no satisfying conclusion, except they made it so that the big monster thing is pretty clearly blown up. Right. I don't think there's any indication that The big monster, the Blair monster, which is the one we alluded to earlier without spoiling it. I think he's dead and gone. I think that's obvious. I think we're supposed to take that at face value. That's not meant to be a part of a cliffhanger just because we don't see his corpse or whatever. Right. We hear it scream when the explosions go off. There's sort of a shrieky shriek that implies that Blair thing is dying in that explosion. The true cliffhanger of the movie is Childs appears out of nowhere after being gone for a little while. Is he now a thing? Was he infected in the meantime? I've never even really questioned whether or not McCready was infected or assimilated. I think he's still very much human. I don't think there's enough of a gap in time for him to have become assimilated at any point. But the child's thing is interesting. The child's ambiguity is built into the script, right? You're you're following the hero. You're with McCready the whole time. There's no reason to think that something weird happened that they didn't want to even show you on the screen. But they intentionally left Childs to stand guard. 
The other guys went to set the explosions. They saw Childs run off. Like a lot of people get lured out of this base pretty easily right. by the thing, unfortunately. He went running off when he saw something. And you're like, well, was that really him? Was he already infected? Was Blair in there? Was Blair what lured him out? So you really don't know. And he has to explain himself and you have to decide whether you believe him. So it gets a little hazy about where Carpenter stands in this. I'm of the opinion, and I think Carpenter would also be of the opinion that it's not meant to have a definitive answer. The ambiguity is the point. It's fun to debate, but there's really no definitive way to say one way or the other. People like, oh, well, he has an earring, so he has to be a human because the thing can't assimilate jewelry. And, and oh, I don't see his breath in the scene. I think that's just being nitpicky. <laughs> I think the spirit of the movie is we don't know. But Carpenter, during marketing for the video game, said that the video game is canon. Okay. How much of the video game story was Carpenter fully aware of when he said this? I have no idea. But in the video game, they are both human, but Childs freezes to death before they're rescued. So that could have just been Carpenter trying to sell a video game that he probably had a financial interest in. And he's kind of flip-flopped on that since. So. Oh, okay. Seems like he would just want to go along. What would be the good of him going, oh, this video game that they just put out about my movie? It's fucking bullshit. Don't play it. <laughs> good game, by the way. I did play it when it came out. Yeah, it's obviously aged now. But it, it was fun at the time. A little survival horror shooter. Not a bad video game. But so I think debating it is kind of besides the point. I don't think there's any definitive answer one way or the other. I think it's just a fun, ambiguous ending. We don't get a lot of those anymore. If you don't like the debate, it can be annoying. But to some extent, the debate itself is part of the joy that John Carpenter gifted to the fans. I made this thing ambiguous because I wanted it to fuck with your head. And a lot of people love to go and read into the details and try to do their research. But John Carpenter also is not the kind of guy who wrote a show Bible on this and has a backstory right. for everything and definitions of where everybody was at every moment. He just made sure it didn't contradict itself too bad. And even so, the movie does some things that when you try to take it apart about who was the thing, when, when did Norris transform, when did Palmer get taken over? Some of the things don't totally make sense if you were trying right. to do it like murder mystery movie style, where you had to make every clue a perfect fit in the puzzle. Ooh previous episode clue but yeah yeah i think looking at the movie on that molecular of a level is kind of missing the point yeah that's not who john carpenter is but he got it right he made a movie that works but it also leaves you going oh man this is a fucked up world these two guys might have just barely survived it or the earth may still be doomed kind of how we feel today right maybe the thing is among us who knows this is carpenter's favorite of his own movies which feels important because he's made quite a few of them quite a few good ones yeah that's a cool stamp I think it's my favorite of his movies. Halloween is the only one that even would come close. But no, this is definitely, definitely up there. I thought Halloween might take it for me. And I went back and watched it. And that was a movie where he made maybe too many of the horror movie compromises. He pioneered some really cool stuff, stylistically, visually, the mood of the movie, the tone. But the characters do some things that later become horror movie tropes. Right. But they weren't tropes then. So it's hard. Right. It's hard to fault him as much. Yeah. You can't fault him as much, but it's not as satisfying a movie. Yeah. So often we have to kind of stretch ourselves to come up with reasons why we think a great movie failed. With the thing, I feel like we don't have to do a lot of the heavy lifting on it because this movie's so beloved nowadays. There are whole think pieces and yeah. podcasts and articles written about why did the thing not find an audience till later? Do you want to talk some of the more popular theories about that? Yeah. Carpenter himself thinks that the film's outlook was too nihilistic and depressing for audiences at the time. The U.S. was in a recession. Audiences wanted an escape at the movies. They wanted to be swept away to a magical world. And I guess the thing's world is kind of magical, but it's not the upbeat, happy kind of magic. It's some dark magic. The thing that people point to when people talk about the tone of the movie is it was a question between what kind of aliens do you like? Do you like E.T. or do you like The Thing? Right. And and they're like, oh, America chose E.T. because they wanted a happy alien, not a disgusting alien that brought about the end of all life on Earth. Which is fair. They're entitled to their wrong opinion. E.T. scared me a lot as a kid, more than The Thing ever has. So, I don't know. The little fucker was creepy. But E.T. was a really charming movie. It gave you a lot of emotion. This is a cerebral movie. It plays on the horror and the suspense, but it doesn't bring you home with story of a boy falling in love with a cute creature. No, this movie's cold in both yeah. setting and tone. Every like, kind of way. It is not interested in making you feel good. No. But also, we mentioned it a little bit in the monologue. What are the odds two of the most beloved sci-fi bombs of all time 
released on the same exact day in theaters. <laughs> it came out the same day as Blade Runner, which even if neither movie performed to expectations, it seems like they would have some crossover in the audience. Yeah. Today, it seems like movie release schedules are a whole system. Like they've got computers solving equations for how to make everything fit. But even then, like there's some studio malpractice here in those two movies trying to share the same weekend. Those are both hardcore sci-fis. And why would you risk splitting your audience? Right. It, it just seems like an oversight. Either they weren't aware of the other one's release or they thought they had a strong enough movie to withstand that. But R-rated sci-fi doesn't have a huge built-in audience in theaters as it is. So yeah. yeah, splitting your audience is not a good call. Blade Runner ended up making just over $6 million its opening weekend, which was about double what the thing made. So okay. it stands to reason the thing kind of shot themselves in the foot with that release date. I know Universal was a little gun shy because of some bad test screenings. But they still gave this movie a decent budget and had clearly high hopes for it. Yeah, it's a shame. Looking at your notes, there's a lot of other movies out this same year that are competing for the sci-fi, that are competing for the horror. The one that sticks out to me that serves as a counterexample to America Wanted Happy Movies is Poltergeist. So Poltergeist went pretty head-to-head with The Thing, as I recall. And that movie is fucked up, too. I saw that movie as a kid. For some reason, that was deemed okay to bring little me to- It was PG. PG PG-13 didn't exist yet. So it was either go PG or R, and Poltergeist isn't gory, really. So- scene where the guy starts peeling his face off in the bathroom mirror, that traumatized me. And the fucking steak with the maggots. I'm still angry about that movie. Yeah, I'm (laughs) not happy with Poltergeist. Good movie. No, that movie scared the shit out of me. (laughs) That was harsh. So how can you say that America didn't want their mellow harshed when they loved Poltergeist? That was a huge hit. And The World Warrior is not a uplifting film. That also came out the same year and was a success. Yeah. That's a pretty dark movie. (laughs) That was scary. For the young teen audience, we didn't have this heavy catalog of apocalyptic movies. You just go, well, of course, everything's fucked up and everyone wears scary masks and fights each other to the death over the few remaining resources. Now that's obvious. That's the way the world works, even for kids. Right. Now is the road warrior just looks like a documentary. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, So maybe audiences were burnt out. Some of the other movies that competed, we already mentioned Poltergeist and the road warrior, but Conan the Barbarian, Wrath of Khan, Tron, Wrath of Tron. No, that's not a real one. I made that one up. <laughs> and then having an R rating, like we mentioned, is always a barrier to entry for certain film goers for obvious reasons. So you are limiting your audience there. But again, this didn't have a $50 million budget. It had a $15 million budget. So it's not like they needed to make a shitload of money to be a success, but they failed even by that metric. But all this discussion that we're having about where does this fit in in the sci-fi movie landscape of that year, it makes sense now. But then everyone just declared, this movie is out of bounds. This is not a sci-fi movie. This isn't even a horror movie. This is an abomination and it shouldn't be watched by anyone. So it kind of didn't even have a chance to even play in that field, even though it would have been in a really tough playing field. It didn't even get the chance to get out of the gate. And... We like to talk about the long-term effects of a movie's failure. And I feel like we've been on a streak lately where we're like, yeah, this movie failed, but nothing bad happened to anybody. So yeah, we get all these happy endings. Everyone was fine. They went on to have wonderful careers. But not in this case. Oh. So obviously Carpenter, his career did rebound eventually to some degree, but he did lose a lot of work because of this movie's failure. He was supposed to direct the science fiction horror film slash Stephen King, who wrote it as Richard Bachman, but later owned his pseudonym and just made all his books Stephen King books. He had a book, Firestarter, that was kind of a hot property back then. Right. And once the thing flopped, Carpenter was set to direct that. He was taken off the film. Universal just bought him out. They had him under a multi-film contract. They said, no, thank you. Wow. His walking papers kicked him to the curb. That's too far. Right. And he said it was 2008. He did an interview talking about the thing and gave a quote about how he took the critical lambasting the movie he received. And it sounds like he had a hard time of it. He said, I take every failure hard. The one I took the hardest was The Thing. My career would have been different if that had been a big hit. The movie was hated, even by science fiction fans. They thought I had betrayed some kind of trust, and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. John Carpenter using the word dissing is just funny to me. Yeah. But no, I feel for him with that because we know now this is a very good movie, but he was kind of fucked up about it. Yeah, he crossed the line. It's interesting to think about how did he get from Halloween to this, and how did the industry take him there? Because I went back watch Halloween and I was expecting a gorier movie from my memories of it being scary slasher. There's not a lot of blood in it. It's pretty... 
pretty bloodless. There's a lot of brutal deaths, which you understand to be happening, but there is none of the kind of Robotine gore in it. And yet- Friday the 13th was the only kind of franchise that embraced gore from the beginning to that degree. Yeah. So I think after he sort of launched this wave of films to show that you can have success with this, the director started pushing the boundaries more and more. And we know that Carpenter was buddies with Landis. American Werewolf in London came out in between these two movies. That's a movie that pushed the limits on special effects. I remember that werewolf transformation scene in that horrified me also as a child because yeah. it was pretty intense and I hadn't seen anything like that on screen. Easy um, to forget that's John Landis because it's so at odds with a lot of his filmography. Yeah. He was kind of a horror dude at the time. And then there were two Friday the 13th in between. And I feel like Friday the 13th movies were ratcheting up the gore from one to the next as they saw that audiences wanted more, could tolerate more. Their pers- Even just demanded more at some point. That's why you go see a Friday the 13th movie. Because Lord knows it's not made with the same care and craft as the Halloween films, at least the first couple. Yeah, they're pretty cheesy. But then Evil Dead was in between that too. And that was a movie that I'm not even that familiar with it, but that was a movie that definitely pushed boundaries. Was not a mainstream movie until later it became an accepted horror classic. Yeah, Evil Dead, it's in like its own category. It's insane. Very good. But yeah, Raimi was clearly interested in, in pushing the boundaries and trying to carve out his own place, which I think he obviously did. And maybe Carpenter was just like too tuned in to his contemporaries. And it's like, look at these guys. Look what they've done since I did Halloween in the fog. They're really going places. He's like, I need to one up everybody. And he did. And he just went too far. He crossed some invisible line and he got smacked down so hard for crossing that line. Maybe the difference is, and I'm just spitballing. I came up with this take right now. So if it's terrible, don't Let's add hear it. it. But those were more strictly horror, whereas he was kind of playing in the sci-fi world a little more. And I think sci-fi fans might have felt it like a violation of their trust to some degree. Yeah, that's a really good thought. Like here I was expecting like a fun sci-fi movie and you throwing this just absolutely horrifying imagery at me. That's, that links up exactly to the way I think about the movie in my mind is that you have to accept the horror elements, let them not bother you in order to get the sci-fi meat that's in the middle of this movie that's really good. But I think some people relish the the horror parts of it too. Yeah, for sure. That is another way to enjoy the movie because the horror parts of this movie are horrifying as they should be, I guess, but it, it can be a little much. I'm stunned just thinking about it. That's the thing, man. What else you got for me? Anything? Well, to the point that you were just making, this movie gets better the more you lean in and you pick up on the subtle stuff because it's kind of two movies and they run in parallel and one of them is really quiet and subtle and it doesn't put everything in your face. It lets this quiet, spooky mystery unfold on this dark, cold base. And the other half of the movie is these concentrated bursts of violence and, and horror. And it's very hard to digest both of them at the same time. One of them pushes you back from the screen and the other one demands that you lean in and notice small, subtle things. And so on repeat watches, you can really get so much more out of the movie, which I did when I went back to it. Like we said, as you get desensitized to the gore, when you first see it and you don't know those characters well enough and you don't pick up on all the little story points that are happening because they're subtle, it really does feel like what some of the critics accuse it of being, which is a boring flat backdrop and just a canvas for Carpenter to splash gore onto. But it's so much more than that. And thankfully, stuck around where we could watch it and appreciate what's behind that surface level. Yeah, I I feel like as baffling as it is that the, the movie was hated upon its release, I understand why it repels certain people. But it's worth the investment if you can. I'm not going to tell anyone to sit through anything they're uncomfortable with. We I know this movie is gross. It is gory and disgusting and horrifying at times. But like you said, there's a lot of smart filmmaking in there and story and great performances too. The movie's well acted. It's well written. It's well shot. Everything about this movie is well done. Even the parts that you hate and you hate them because the filmmakers wanted you to. Yeah. It's supposed to be horrifying. Yeah. It's a feature, not a bug. So I don't know, man. I just love this movie so much. I'm bummed it failed and kind of fucked John Carpenter's career up for a little. The only saving grace is it qualifies for this podcast and we get to talk about it because, man, this movie rules so hard. Tune yeah. in next year where we talk about the 2011 prequel. Oh, boy. Because <laughs> that also was not a box office success, but that's less surprising. <laughs> this was fun. Thanks for bringing this into the zone and giving me the chance. It's now like a favorite movie of mine. I never thought I would say that about this movie, knowing that it existed for the last 40 years and uh, always thinking that it wasn't for me and I couldn't stomach it. And now I'm like, this is a fucking cool sci-fi movie and I can deal with bug heads and wormy <laughs> dogs because I like what I get in the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's got a high barrier of entry because everything you hear about it is about just 
how horrifying it is and how disgusting it is. But once you get past that, there's a lot of good stuff in here to yeah. entertain yourself with. So thank you guys for tuning into the first of our Blasttober Spook Zone Spectacular, which will be going on all of October. We'll be back next week with another scary movie for you to sink your teeth into. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Hit us up on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Shoot us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, suggestions, just praise, compliments. Yeah, we'd love to hear that. Yeah. Can't get enough. It's all good stuff. So thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. This is